This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. If you read the business pages of most newspapers, they're filled with stories about the sort of companies that people do business with, airlines, retail, outlets, football clubs and so on. There tend to be far fewer stories about the arms industry, unless it's about some scandal, generally bribes or sales to governments with poor human rights records. So today we're discussing the future of the arms industry with Peter Vaseman who researches these matters at the leading institute in this area, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, known as SIPRI. So, Peter Vaseman, welcome to you. Thank you. And let's just start with a very broad look at what's going on, what's being produced around the world in the various uh, systems, so there's land, air, sea, cyber. Let's start with land. What is the latest trend, if you like, in the production of land-based systems? The tank is back. The tank is an item which, after the end of the Cold War, at least in Europe, got a lot less attention. We saw that countries like Germany would reduce their numbers of tanks from thousands to maybe a few hundred. And the tank has never been completely been away. There are parts of the world where there has been a very significant interest in tanks, such as, for example, in India or even in Russia, to some extent, though less than during the Cold War. But now with the war in Ukraine, the interest in the tank has come back. Uh, the war in Ukraine shows that tanks can still be used on the battlefield and can play an important role there. And we see also in, in uh, the recent year that, for example, a country like Poland has heavily invested in hundreds and hundreds of very modern advanced tanks. So the tank is back. That's one of the, let's say, stories we can tell in that regard when we talk about land warfare. Yeah. And, and when you say modern advanced tanks, what does a tank do today that it didn't do you know, 30 years ago? In concept, it doesn't necessarily do so much different. But in terms of speed, in terms of accuracy, and very important also, and this is a story which is true throughout all weapon systems in terms of interconnectivity in how it 
uh, talks, how it links information with other systems. That is also where we have seen a major change in military technology over the past 40 years or so. That is true for all different types of weapon systems. And just one more question on land systems. When you look at the conflict in Ukraine with vast billions of dollars being spent on that, what's Ukraine teaching us? Well, the Ukraine is teaching us that war is about very many different things. It's not about one particular system. It's not about one particular wonder weapon. And of course, we knew that already, but it is teaching us that again. And what I mean with that is in the beginning of the war, we would see that there was a lot of attention for uh, the way the Ukraine managed to use light arms, uh, anti-tank weapons to stop the Russian advances. But then it shifted. The next, in, in, in the next stage, uh, the Ukraine was given significant numbers of artillery uh, and quick, quick, quickly showed how to use that in a very efficient manner against the Russian forces. And, and that moves on and on. Now we see that they have received rocket systems, which have become very important. The next step may actually be combat air aircraft and other advanced equipment. But of course, the war in Ukraine is very context specific and it doesn't necessarily tell us much about what other states will or have already decided to choose when it comes to uh, improving their military capacity. OK, so uh, that's a little uh, couple of points on land systems. What about the air systems? What's happening in, in, in that area? When it comes to air systems, a lot of attention has been given to drones to uncrewed aircraft, often very small ones with a limited capacity when it comes to carrying missiles and bombs, but they have received an enormous amount of attention, in particular also again in the war in Ukraine, but also for example in the war in Libya. There they have shown that in the hands of, let's say, skilled operators, they can make a difference in a very asymmetrical war, in a war in which one side clearly is the underdog. However, there's also a lot of hype there because most major countries in the world, or I should say all of them still, focus primarily on advanced combat aircraft, uh, preferably combat aircraft which can do many things, which are called multi-role or flex-role aircraft, which can uh, shoot down other air aircraft and, of course, can attack targets deep in the territory of an enemy. And that is where most of the money, most of the investments in air warfare go to. Um, a very good example is how uh, the US just this weekend presented its latest super advanced uh, bomber air aircraft, the B-21. That's an aircraft which has per piece a value of something like estimated $700 million. Um, and that compares to uh, an estimated price for a drone of maybe one to five million dollars. So we can see that the investment in these kind of advanced crewed combat aircraft and bomb bombers is still um, uh, far dominant in the market for air warfare systems. But again, what is it that this amazing $700 million bomber can do that a previous generation of bombers couldn't do? 
Yeah, it is supposed to be able to do it more stealthy, or in other words, in a way that it can't be seen. It is supposed to be able to do it faster, um, and very important also, it is supposed to be do it more reliable in terms of um, its accessibility should be higher. Weapons systems have always been very complex, and for that reason, often they don't always work. And one of the important changes, of course, in modern military equipment is that you can make it work more often. Instead of being, let's say, 70% of the time available, you bring it up to 90% or something like that. So it is, is that which is also a very important change. Right. And, and is there an overlap between the drones and the, you know, the $1 million drone and the $700 million bomber in that, I mean, I was just hearing this morning, actually, on the radio that a, a new advanced combat aircraft, which is being put together by the Italians, the British and the Japanese, may be pilotless. So it would it would be a drone, really. That is the long-term development, which probably will happen uh, over the coming decades or more. Exactly when that point will be reached that you have truly uncrewed uh, combat aircraft is still very unclear. Overall, the message from, in particular, pilots and air warfare specialist is that uh, a piloted aircraft is still far superior to a a non-crewed one. Far superior because the pilot can take decisions faster and can be more, let's say, creative in the decisions that a pilot makes. Um, And and that makes them still uh, superior. And that's also what we see in the decisions that countries take. Yes, it is true that several European states, for example, are developing a new combat aircraft. And yes, the idea is that it will be optionally uncrewed, that there is the option to also use it in that particular mode. But overall, they still make sure that there is the full, let's say, space and all the systems included that uh, 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 make it possible to use it with a pilot and therefore make it more flexible, reliable in combat. Very interesting hearing you say that. We've just uh, done a discussion here on the future of on, on artificial intelligence. And uh, the language you're using is exactly the language that uh, accountants use, doctors use, architects and everyone else in in sort of defending the profession against these AI uh, innovations. And the the advocate of artificial intelligence who I was speaking to was basically saying, you know, AI can do things which we could, you know, fall in the category of what we think of as creative and they can do it more reliably and uh, you know, relying on the processing of mass data can basically make the same decisions or, or yeah, more consistent decisions, actually, than humans. And I think that is for completely true. And that is also why AI is being integrated into modern systems, uh, in particular those which are being developed in the West. Um, for example, the F-35 combat aircraft, which is the kind of the, 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 the high standard within combat aircraft in the world right now, uh, does make use of it. Now, don't ask me exactly how it does that, because I don't know that. But I know that they, that it, it it the use of AI, the use of of automated systems that can process vast quantities of information, is very important right now to support the pilot. The p- 
decided. We'll still have to make the final decision, but it does that on the basis of AI-driven systems. Um, and, and that is uh, uh, the state of play where we are now when it comes to advanced arms. Okay, sea-based systems. What can you tell us is, is new about that? I think for sea-based systems, it's a very wide variety of things which you have to take into account. That, of course, includes uh, the, 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 the larger surface ships, uh, the frigates, or even the destroyer, or even the larger systems. There is a significant interest in a number of states in aircraft carriers. And, and then, of course, it's important to mention there that sea-based systems are, of course, more than ships. They also include the aircraft, which are very important, uh, which ships can be hunted, for example. And so aircraft carriers, uh, there is an increased in interest in that. Uh, we see, for example, that a country like India is now also producing its own aircraft car carrier. And other states, uh, such as South Korea and Turkey, have developed smaller types of aircraft carriers, which don't necessarily have an enormous range, but really enhance their sea power significantly. Um, very important here is also to mention something which is maybe less uh, well known is the importance and the continuing importance of submarines, which can both be used to uh, threaten, to attack enemy uh, ships, but for example, also play an important role in uh, the collection of intelligence and in surveillance uh, operations and and those also uh, are, are quite significant in how they are being uh, used uh, throughout the world and finally maybe to mention here too is of course the increased use of uh, nuclear weapons armed submarines uh, in the past this was the uk uh, russia france and the us we've had them but in recent years first china and now also india have joined the club of countries that have such arms pakistan claims that it is working on something like that too and there are also reasons to believe that north korea is making attempts to join that club whether they will uh, be able to do so has to be seen and when we think about ships and submarines, are they going to go, not not pilotless, I suppose, but captainless, uh, are they going to become drones? As it is now, I haven't seen much about that yet. There are, of course, projects in which much smaller ships, small boats, uh, you could almost say oversized torpedoes are becoming uncrewed for now. But that, that's still a very early development as far as I know. Before we get on to cyber and, and things uh, like that and, and what's going on in that area, ju ju just looking at these land, air and sea systems, seems from what you're saying, they're just getting higher and higher tech, basically, better at what they do. A lot of it is refining things, making them quicker, more reliable, more stealthy. But the people who operate them must have to be very good with computers. And that's not really the same skill set as a soldier in the infantry who's got to go and you know, use a bayonet. So is, is that a, a problem for armies that there, there's a huge range of skills now required? But of course, computers also help to make the operation of weapon systems simpler. And you mentioned already AI, uh, which for sure is the kind of technology which will do that. But I think there is uh, for sure a tendency to develop modern weapon systems which take away a lot of the pressure, a lot of the tasks of uh, the uh, people who have to operate them. And in simple words, if you just look at a cockpit 
of a combat aircraft now and one from 1975. You will see that the all the one which have will have many buttons and dials and other things which the pi pi pilot has to keep an eye on. Now a lot of that is automated. So on the one hand, yes, training is ne needed to operate them, but on the other hand, the systems are made to be operated in more simple terms. Arguably, potentially, the real issue is with the maintenance of such systems. But even there, it is, of course, possible to create weapons which make use of models which you can just replace. And so there's a, just a different way of maintaining and operating systems, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have more qualified personnel for that. Right. Well, let's think then about the new areas of, of, of systems, cyber, and I guess information warfare, which seems to be more and more important, and, and you know, military is spending very significant sums on, on basically persuasion campaigns of, of various kinds. So what's going on in those areas? People ask me uh, in these times of, okay, but what is it that European states can spend their military financing on? Should that be on more tanks or should that be on more air aircraft? And then often I say, but if we look at the war in, in Ukraine, and if we look at uh, how the Russian forces have shown to be basically inefficient in what they try to achieve. And therefore, you could argue that the threat from the traditional military, from the threat of tanks and aircraft by Russia to, to Europe is actually not that uh, impressive or, or kind of significant. And therefore, it can very well be argued that much more attention should be given to uh, this kind of information warfare, this kind of influence warfare, which uh, we see throughout the world. And so, I, I would intend, I would tend to kind of argue for doing something which uh, is being done in Sweden, where you have since shortly again a special government organization which is doing psychological defense as it is called here which exactly means how to prepare the population for attempts by foreign powers in particular to uh, influence opinions and and change the political system here okay so that, that gives us an overview of what's going on in terms of the hardware if you like and and, and what's being made uh, let's now talk a bit more about uh, the trade and how it all works. So who is making most of this stuff? And is that changing? So if, if we could deal with, I don't know how you want to do this, maybe go through the different land air and see who are the leading producers? Well, I, I think it's important to take it all together in one go first and to say that it's very clear that if we look, for example, at the largest arms producing companies in the world, it's a list which actually came out a, a, a week ago. It's a super list which, which shows that we see, we see that it is the United States which is really predominant there. That is where most of the arms production lies. And then next, it is within a number of European states. And it's important to mention there when I say this, that 
um, the arms industry, particularly within the Western world, within Europe and the US, is not necessarily nation-based. There are headquarters in the UK or in France or in the US, but often enough this involves companies which operate international, which have a headquarter there, but have their subsidiaries in other countries in Europe or in the United States. At the largest uh, British headquartered companies based systems, which has a turnover, which is roughly for, I think it's something like 40 to 50% in the UK itself. And the other 50% is predominantly in the USA. That's where the items are produced. And that's where the most important subsidiaries are, but also, for example, elsewhere in Saudi Arabia or in Australia. So these are internationally operating companies. But the kind of the core of that is still within the US and then within Europe followed by uh, China and Russia. For those two countries, of course, it's hard to find accurate, detailed information. But what we have is enough to say that they clearly are the, then the next level of important countries in the world. And then you have a few, you could say, pockets where individual countries uh, also play a reasonably significant role in the arms industry nowadays. Uh, Japan, South Korea, Israel, um, are the most important ones to mention there. And you mentioned the UK. What about how does the UK compare to other major European powers? Uh, the UK is for sure one of those major players in the arms industry, uh, compared also to Germany, France, which are the other two uh, major uh, play, plays in Europe, and I would also mention Italy there, where there is one company which which is very significant too, which again also has significant subsidiaries in 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 the US. Well, tell us about where most of this production ends up. So you know, if you take the UK, it's, it's got a tiny army now, uh, can fit inside a football stadium, and I, I can't believe it would it would use that much equipment. So, which countries are the leading exporters, and which ones are the uh, are the countries that are producing for internal use? Mm -hmm. Maybe I should say a little bit first, to, just to put this in perspective, when we talk about the arms industry, often enough, we would think that it is a very large industry. And I'm not going to say it isn't, but it is maybe not as large as you would expect. It's important to mention here that world military spending in 2021 was just over $2,000 billion dollars. That is a, an awful lot of money, of course, but only part of that goes to the arms in, in industry. A very significant part of that will go to operational costs, will go to salaries, etc. So when we look at the largest at, at the hundred largest arms producing companies in the world, their total turnover is something in the vicinity of 500 to 600 billion dollars in recent years. And if we then compare that to the industry, let's say the manufacturing industry in general, then it's not necessarily that much. Military spending itself is about 2.1% of the total uh, GMP. And if we then take the procurement part, the money that goes to the arms in industry, then may, maybe that's 1% of GMP. And if we, for example, compare the largest arms producing company in the world, Lockheed Martin, which has a turnover in arms of about 60 billion in recent years, and we compare that to a car producer like Volkswagen or Toyota, which have a turnover of 250 
billion dollars a year or something in that vicinity. So I just want to put things a bit in perspective. The arms industry is not necessarily as big as people may think. No, that's very, very interesting. Uh, but I guess it, 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 it just packs a big geopolitical punch. So it sort of, it matters more, but for not, not, not for purely financial reasons. Exactly. That is exactly the point. And that is also the reason why Cipri looks at it, not because of the financial aspects of, of it per se, even though they do play a role too, but very much thinking about what impact does this have on peace and security in the world? Uh, and how, do, how does this uh, potentially lead and fuel to uh, conflicts in different parts of the world? Yeah. So, so, but again, getting back to that question, I mean, if you take the US versus, I don't know, Russia, I presume the US is exporting much more value than Russia is. Uh, I mean, there would be different ways of measuring that, of course. But are, are there some kind of, I mean, would Russia be mainly producing for itself or is that not right? Yes, then we look at what countries do when it comes to export. And there, as you already indicate, there are very different uh, 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 kind of uh, levels of dependency on arms export for the arms industry. The United States has such a large internal market that even if arms producing companies would be restricted significantly in their arms exports, they still would be able to uh, sustain most of their revenue. I'd say that I think there were estimates at some point by the industry itself that maybe 10 to 20 percent of their um, revenue was dependent on arms exports. And then we shouldn't forget that most of those arms exports go to, let's say, very reliable allies of the US, primarily also uh, in Europe. Whereas then, for example, for Russia, the picture is different. A lot of what Russia produced is for Russia itself, but in Russia, the arms industry is more important as an industry by itself, because Russia doesn't have that much to export when it comes to manufactured goods. Um, Russian exports are primarily about uh, raw materials, about oil, gas, etc. Manufactured goods from Russia are not necessarily very much in demand elsewhere in the world. Uh, who buys a Russian car? Who buys a Russian mobile phone? Uh, in Europe, basically no one. Um, and elsewhere in the world, not really either. So weapons are then one of the few things that Russia can export, for which there is a very significant interest. And, and therefore, that has played an important role. And Russia has also been for a long time now, been the second largest arms exporter in the world. Oh, really? So it's the, the US is the, is the biggest and Russia is the second. And, and where does China fit into that? The US is by far the biggest. Uh, Russia is the second at a distance. And then we get a group of countries which include China, France, and Germany. And actually, right now, I should say France, China and Germany, because that is the current estimate that we make at CIPRI of, of which countries or how they rank as arms exporters. So France has seen a real increase in arms exports in recent years. It has what France will consider a, a succeeded in achieving its objective when it comes to uh, increasing its arms exports. And then at some distance there again, you see China and Germany uh, trailing a bit behind there. And, and earlier you described the UK as a big player in this, but you've not mentioned them in, in being a big player in terms of exports. So how does that work? Yeah, the UK has uh, for a long time been an important arms exporter and, and usually figured amongst the top five and then kind of in the same group as 
Germany, China, France. But in recent years, we see a bit of a decline in UK arms export as compared to, to those other states. Um, they've lost a bit of the market here and there. And in particular, the UK has been very dependent on arms exports to a few key markets, uh, and most importantly, uh, Saudi Arabia. And for a variety of reasons, those exports have significantly decreased. And the UK has tried to uh, gain more major contracts, in particular for combat aircraft in Saudi Arabia in recent years, but it hasn't succeeded. And so that's where we see a bit of a kind of an interesting development there that the UK doesn't take that uh, very prominent place as an exporter uh, right now. Uh, And we see that even a country like Italy is more or less on par uh, with the UK as an arms exporter. Right. And and then now let's just look at it from the other side. Who are the big importers? So you've mentioned Saudi and presumably India. Who's importing this stuff? India is is and has been the largest arms importer or the second largest uh, for for decades, uh, which is not necessarily so surprising considering the size of the country and the different security perceptions and threats it sees uh, from Pakistan, but increasingly also from China. And on top of that comes that India has an arms industry, has been trying to develop that since decades, but basically has failed. The Indian arms industry is just not able to develop and produce its own arms. And it doesn't seem that this is going to change for the foreseeable future either. Other important importers of weapons are, yes, Saudi Arabia, which has uh, invested heavily in uh, arms already since the 1970s, but uh, especially in the last last 10 years has seen a a significant increase again of its arms imports, uh, very much related to its, its suspicions towards Iran and in relationship to that, of course, also the way it is involved heavily in the war in Yemen. And of course, also related to things like prestige, to things like internal instability and the perceived need to build up a strong military force or forces uh, which can deal with potential uprisings there. And also there, Saudi Arabia has already since long invested heavily in arms, uh, but only since recently has tried to build up its own arms industry, which is then an interesting development where we see that a country like Saudi Arabia, and for that matter also the United Arab Emirates, another country in the region that is an important arms import porter, that they try to build up their own arms in industry with the help of technology, with the help of a workforce uh, uh, and uh, even a man- managing kind of force coming uh, from uh, established arms uh, producing countries in, in the West. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I understood that one of the trends is that, you know, if, if a country like Saudi Arabia is going to place a big arms order, that part of the deal now will be you'll, you'll make this stuff in Saudi Arabia, you'll train our people in how to make it, you will basically transfer the technology as part of the deal. Yes, this is a very important thing. Countries have tried to do this already for a long time. It's not a new thing. As I mentioned before, India has tried to build up its own arms industry, but has done that primarily first by importing technology and demanding from the suppliers that they're willing to share with both the equipment to to produce, to to 
to first assemble and then produce complete arms uh, and then also to help with the development of new arms in India itself or as you men mentioned in the UAE in Saudi Arabia so the whole demand for offsets for technology sharing is very strong in the arms industry. Now then, can we just look at it as from a yet another angle, which is the companies that produce it? You've mentioned Lockheed Martin and BAE Systems, but if you look at it globally, which are the biggest companies doing this? We have a whole list at CIPRI where Lockheed Martin tops, um, and then there is a number of other US companies which play an important role in that top 10. We have in that top 10 also a BA system still, but again, that's also very much related to their revenue uh, in the US. We have French or maybe European companies such as uh, Thales, Safran. We have a Italian com company called Leonardo. Um, and we have also since recently information available about Chinese companies. Uh, and some of those now figure also in the top 10 largest arms producing companies in the world. And that's a relatively new development. This was certainly not the case some two decades ago. What is the relationship between these companies and governments? So, you know, I, it, it can't be the case that Lockheed Martin can sell to whoever they want, and yet they are a, a private company. So how is that managed? The arms industry is extremely dependent on the governments in the countries where they operate, uh, both because those governments tend to be the most important customers. So Lock Lockheed Martin's most important customer is the US itself, but also because if they want to export arms, they can only do so with the explicit permission and usually support of the government of the country uh, where their products are, are made. And, and I, I stress the letter. So again, if BA Systems wants to export something to, let's say, to Saudi Arabia, then it depends completely on where that product is made uh, when it comes to which government is going to make the decision to allow that or not. So I give another example, a company, one of the major companies in Germany is Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall makes, for example, artillery and ammunition. Um, and if Rheinmetall wants to export weapons to Saudi Arabia, it will not get permission to do so when those weapons are being made in Germany. But if their subsidiary in South Africa makes the ammunition, then they most likely will get a per per permit because the South African government has a very different views on arms exports than the German one has. I see, yes. But it sounds like these companies are so dependent on government uh, for their you know, sales internally, for their export markets, that they, they might as well be nationalised. I mean, it, 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 are they really independent private corporations, actually? Yes, they're independent private corporations that have a profit objective. Uh, that is how they op operate. In the past, we had, of course, more often national arsenals, national arms production. Um, in Russia, of course, in a way, we still have that. There is a big conglomerate called Rostec, where a whole range of companies uh, are, are kind of 
under that umbrella. Um, but that, of course, is very heavily uh, steered by the Russian government itself. But in Europe and in the US, uh, the arms industry is primarily in private hands, you could say. Um, and that still seems to function uh, as desired, as there is no real, um, let's say, indication that this will change or that governments in Europe and in the US see, see a need to change this. Now, you've made the point that the industry, in, in terms of its uh, sales, is actually in turnover, is smaller than many people think. Uh, now we've got this broad overview you've given us of the, of the global trade. What else is misunderstood about it, actually? I think one of the important things there is that the arms industry is, how to say, um, there's a lot of information out there. Um, but it is not as transparent as one would wish it to be. And that means that it is sometimes very difficult to test certain claims. There is, of course, uh, there are those who say that, uh, let's say, a lot of arms acquisition, arms procurement is about corruption. And that can be in terms of corruption, as in a government official gets money to make a decision in favor of one or the other arms producing company. But it can also be related to, let's say, the political relations, the revolving door principle in which staff from MODs go into companies and vice versa. And together they build up, let's say, what is then considered uh, in somewhat uh, almost outdated terms, but still valid enough a military industrial complex and of course there are very good reasons to believe that this can be the case or maybe is the case but it's so extremely difficult to prove because how can we prove that the threat perceptions by let's say european states are truly influenced by the industry itself what is a real threat perception and where do politicians or decision makers listen too closely to what the industrial lobby says and this is an area of research which is so difficult as we don't have any data to to build our assessments on or not any real kind of comprehensive accurate reliable data yeah, and presumably both the industry and the politicians can hide behind national security considerations to say, oh, we, we can't discuss this, it, it, you know, it, it's something we have to keep secret, and then those kind of opaque relationships can, can carry on. Exactly. The, the industry is suspected of being corruption-prone because of the lack of transparency. And the lack of transparency is legitimate in itself. Of course, you cannot be detailed about the type of equipment you acquire. And and the thing is also that it's exactly in those details that the financial differences may be high. You can say, okay, we're willing to buy 100 combat aircraft because that is important for our national security. You can then say even this is of a certain type, but then you keep the details about the exact type and the exact numbers of ammunition, spare parts, maintenance, the specific electronics that are being used, those you keep secret and there are very significant sums involved in that and therefore there is then a risk that as there are significant sums involved in it and uh, that that can easily hide kind of corruption and and payments and other uh, kind of 
issues related to corruption in a way that that weapons are being acquired not because they fit within the official threat perception and and how to to deal with that in terms of the capacity that has to be acquired but also uh, it can be related to what the lobby uh, has pushed or even to real direct financial corruption I take the point that it's a, it's an, it's a non-transparent area, but is there one case that's come out that you could give us an example of that? There are some clear corruption cases which have evolved, which has which have been proven, um, and with that I mean proven in court where people have been convicted. But there are very few of those. There are some research projects out there, not by Super itself, I must say, um, which have looked at that. And you see some cases where, yes, it has been proven that, for example, at some point, significant bribes have been paid uh, in Greece related to the procurement uh, of submarines. Um, And that is of concern because Greece bought those submarines claiming that they are needed, in particularly also due to their tensions with Turkey. But if the reality is that they're being acquired in real, uh, partly due to corruption, then that is not only a financial issue, but it also raises the risk that corruption will truly feed what in essence are arms races. Right. And, and that maybe they don't need the submarines. It's just it's just being done to make money for, for the people involved. Yeah. And, and what about the role of arms dealers? Because presumably they come in when governments say, no, you can't export to, I don't know, the Syrian government. And then the arms dealers can see a, a, a gap which they can exploit in the market. Sometimes that's the case, but the real thing is, and we just have this whole story which came about today uh, about Victor Boot, the notorious arms dealer of 20 years ago. He is now back in Russia and, and there are questions about what will that mean for the arms trade. But the reality is that people like him they are small fishes. They can be problematic uh, because they can actually fuel certain types of conflict, uh, often a conflict in, in let's say, uh, less developed, poorer countries. Victor Boot was very active, at least allegedly was very ac- active some 20 years ago when you had a horrible conflict there. But overall, they play a very small role in the arms industry. And in general, uh, arms dealers arms brokers are also heavily controlled by the arms export control laws and systems that are in place. Oh, is that right? So most of these arms dealers are playing a role within the sanctioned market. They're not operating outside of it. Correct. There are uh, uh, companies which acquire, for example, secondhand ma- uh, weapons and then put them out on, on the market. But they will also uh, have to uh, abide by the rules. And often enough, they do. They will seek the permits need, need, needed for those deals. Mm-hmm. And and so just uh, let's look ahead as, as we tend to at the end of these interviews. Uh, what do you think are, are the big trends coming up in the arms industry and the arms trade? The most important trend is going to be that uh, we will see a very significant increase in arms procurement in Europe. That means that the arms industry in Europe will benefit from that. That will mean that other arms industries in in the world, in the US, but for example, also in South Korea, which is also an up and coming arms producing country in the world, will all kind of see a very significant market there. Um, Whereas uh, the market for weapons elsewhere in the world, alas, is not going to diminish 
change based on what we can see now. We will see a continuing high demand for arms in the Middle East, in India and Pakistan, in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and for that matter also in China, etc. So I think overall the expectation is right now that uh, considering that the war in Ukraine, uh, arms procurement and, and the arms market will only increase in the coming years. Well, Peter Faserman, thanks very much for a very clear overview of what's going on in in the world of uh, military weapons. Thank you for having me.